So this is another uh, Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Matt is having trouble connecting, but because Ben McIntyre is our special guest, we can't waste his time because he'll have spies to go and check out. Uh, and, you know, that would be completely the wrong thing. So maybe um, halfway through this conversation, Matt will splutter onto the line. Meantime, Ben McIntyre, hello, how are you, sir? I'm very well. You just made me... You just made me think what, what the spying in the age of social distancing would be like. I mean, I don't know how you do a sort of a brush contact, which is where you have to hand a secret item to someone else without it being spotted. I mean, you can't do that if you've got to stay a metre apart. That's a very good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Are you, are you quite a long way from your microphone, Ben? Sorry, is that better? Am I a bit closer now? Let me do that. Is that clearer? Are you hearing yes, me OK? Yeah, you feel, I, I feel as though we've got a bug in your room and we've planted it and you're, you're just speaking casually. <laughs> and, <I'm>, uh, <laughs> that's probably right. Um, it probably might be bugged this. It, um, I'm certainly calling from a safe house somewhere. That's for damn sure. Well, we're all in safe houses, aren't we? That's, exactly. that's what's changed since, since we last spoke. Um, in fact, funnily enough, the last time you spoke, we were talking about Oleg Gordievsky. Um, yes. Uh, from the Spy and the Trader, and I, I called him the other day to see how he's getting on and he said... I don't know why everyone is making such a fuss. I have been in lockdown now for 35 years. <laughs> so how's he... I mean, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. How's he doing? He's OK. I mean, he lives a pretty solitary life anyway. Um, and he's under permanent guard, which is strange at any time, but even stranger in lockdown. I mean, I think he is... He's pretty lonely. I mean, he didn't see a lot of people, but... The few that would have gone to see him obviously can't at the moment because he's super shielding. He's he's a good age now, so and he's not in the best of health, but he's in, he's in good spirits. He's made of some extraordinarily indomitable kind of Russian granite that never never really crumbles. So he's he's doing well actually. I wonder if he saw the BBC adaptation, the sort of dramatization of the Shripal affair. Do you know? I slightly doubt it, actually. First of all, because he doesn't really hold with, with fiction and, and sort of drama. He, he's very much kind of fact man, he, and he likes you know, news and he likes documentaries and so on. Um, secondly, I think he's also a bit sick of the Skripal story. He's very slightly put out by the Skripal story because <laughs> he, he feels that Skripal is a rather second-rate character um, in terms of his kind of espionage, and that uh, really if they were going to try and and have a go at someone, it should have been him. <laughs> what a strange sort of pecking order. Um, <laughs> no, it's, I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course, but I, he, you know, he, he, he doesn't really think, he thinks Skripal was rather small fry. But he must, he must look at the news and the recent poisoning of the Russian opposition uh, leader and think, well, you know, Russia is still doing what Russia does. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for, for Oleg... It's interesting, actually. I mean, this is a, he sees his history not repeating itself, but as a continuum. And in his view, you know, the, the sort of thugs of the modern Russian state are exactly the same as the thugs that he was dealing with uh, with the KGB in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. So he, he he's always said that, that, you know, that Putin is the direct heir of that KGB tradition and is himself, it is true, is a former KGB Colonel, so he thinks that way. So, so for Oleg, in a way, he Oleg never bought the idea that somehow the collapse of communism, which we were all too ready to accept in the West, that the collapse of communism somehow signalled an end of Russian aggression, and that somehow they would become little pussycats overnight. Oleg was warning way back then, saying that is not how this works. These people are still around. I mean, I know we're talking about we're sort of talking about your last book, and you're here to talk about your new book, but it's all part of a. Part, as you say, it's part of a continuum. It's all part of 
of one story. And Ben McIntyre's new book is Agent Sonia, Lover, Mother, Soldier, Spy. Whoever did that strap line, Ben, is genius because it pitches <laughs> well, the book ab- absolutely perfectly. <laughs> oh, you're making me blush. Um, y- yes, I suppose it does, really, and you just don't expect it because the truth is, it, it, I hope in a way it sums up what was for her an absolutely central dilemma, which was how to be a lover, a mother, a soldier and a spy at the same time. And and it was something she struggled with throughout her life, really. And, and even in, in her old, old age, she wondered whether she had been a good spy, but a bad mother. Tell us. So tell us about her. Ursula Kaczynski uh, is her name. Tell us about her. Well, she was born into the sort of, well, actually she was born just before the First World War, but she, she sort of grew up in the Weimar Republic in Germany. She was a German Jew. She was the daughter of quite wealthy Jewish academic parents uh, of the sort of haute um, bourgeoisie in Berlin. And she grew up in the chaos of the Weimar Republic when the extreme right was on the march, fascism was, was rising, and uh, the forces of the extreme left were growing as well. And, you know, it was a time of pitched battles in the streets, complete economic disintegration, huge hardship, great inequalities. And Ursula, as many did, and she was only 17 at this point, Ursula decided that the only people standing up to fascism were the communists. And so she joined the Communist Party at the age of 17 and never left it. I mean, that became absolutely her, her not just her ideology, really, but her faith. Um, and though it went through all sorts of, of appalling doubts and, and contradictions, and she came to realise in the end that, that the Stalinist version of communism had been a sort of appalling crime, nonetheless, she was a communist to her dying day. Um, but her introduction into espionage came considerably later, in fact. I mean, she was, um, she'd married a man called Rudy Hamburger, who was a young architect, um, and Rudy got a job in Shanghai working for the British. Uh, working for the British Municipal Council out there, and she went with him, and and this was in nineteen this would be in nineteen twenty nine, and they lived the life of colonial expatriates, tea parties, you know, swimming pool parties, you know, playing got mini golf, all that kind of thing. And it's, but of course, China and Shanghai was the birthplace of the Chinese Communist Party, and there was a secret, appalling spy war taking place behind the sort of placid exterior of this expatriate life. And the, the nationalist government of China was trying to really to exterminate the Chinese Communist Party. 300,000 people were killed in what became known as the White Terror. And Ursula sort of almost by accident got swept up in it. She met a woman, an extraordinary woman called Agnes Smedley. Now, Agnes Smedley was, a, was an American novelist, a very successful left-wing American novelist. Uh, she was a sort of natural revolutionary. She was a communist sympathizer. And she was a spy. Um, Agnes had been recruited by Russian, by Soviet intelligence in Berlin in the early 20s. And she was already running a number of sort of spies and spy rings inside Shanghai on behalf of the sort of beleaguered communists. And she was the one who, who put Ursula in touch with another extraordinary figure called uh, Ricard Sorge, who was described by Ian Fleming as the most formidable spy in history. Um, and Sorge's story is extraordinary. I mean, he would end up in the end being hanged by the Japanese. But um, before that, I mean, he, he was absolutely remarkable and he was very handsome, very seductive. And indeed, he seduced. Well, he recruited Ursula to Soviet military intelligence and then he seduced her. And they had this extraordinary uh, love affair. Ursula had already had one child, but he was really the love of her life um, and the entwining of the emotional, romantic 
um, side of Ursula's existence and her espionage sort of started with Ricard Sorge and continued forever. That She never lost that. So, I mean, it is an astonishing story, which you've just begun to unpack there, how she was out of the Weimar Republic, recruited in Shanghai, and yet a lot of the interest obviously here is the fact that she spent so many years in rural Oxfordshire um, right. and becoming one of the most successful spies of the 20th century. Uh, tell us about the, the British section of this story, Ben. Well, that comes at the, sort of the other end of her story, really, because from Shanghai she goes to, she goes to Japanese-occupied Manchuria and from there to Poland and from there to Switzerland, and then she winds up in the rural Cotswold village of Great Rollwright. Um, and if you'd visited Great Rollwright in 1945, you might have seen uh, a woman called Mrs. Burton emerging from the Furs, a kind of stone cottage and climbing onto her bicycle. Uh, in fact, uh, and she was married, of course, to Len, and they, had, you know, she had three children. But uh, in reality, of course, this was now Colonel Ursula Kaczynski of the Red Army. Each of those children had a different father. And in the privy in the back garden, she had built a, a very powerful radio transmitter, which she was using to communicate with Moscow. And at this point, she was running the biggest spy ring, the biggest Soviet spy ring in Britain, extracting the secrets of the building of the atomic weapon to pass them to Moscow. Um, so when, when, when the Soviets detonated their te first test bomb in 1949, to the astonishment of the West in 1949, that was the work of Mrs. Burton of Great Rollwright and her spies. Quite a st I mean, there's, <laughs> there are so many stories just uh, encapsulated in that one answer that you've, uh, that you've given us. And your book touches on all those different aspects that we mentioned at the beginning, the love of mother, soldier, spy. Um, can I just, can I ask you about her role as a mother? And I think I'm asking this because I'm deep into, in fact, about to finish watching uh, The Americans, the story of mm. the KGB couple embedded into American society in the 1980s. I mean, it's fiction. Mm. But a large part of the drama, and it's a bit soapy at times, but is about their children and how they bring up their children and the fact that they had children to cover the fact that they were spies. It was part of their cover. And what do they say and how do they say it? So I've got that in my head whilst I'm mm. reading your book. How did... Ursula, how did uh, Agent Sonia, how did she go about the fact that she had children and what she said to them and when? Well, you know, I mean, the thing is that her children, all three of them, really knew nothing about Ursula's spy life until they were middle-aged. I mean, they were not until they were in their 30s and 40s that actually the truth about what she'd really been came out. And for them, it was... It was very damaging, actually. They adored their mother, um, but it was a sort of terrible blow in many ways to discover that the woman that they had always known as their mother had really been someone completely different. Um, and that is true of Ursula throughout her life. She invented and reinvented herself. But she was a very dedicated mother. And I think I said at the, at the top of the programme, I mean, she, she struggled with that. I mean, she, 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 she felt constantly guilty. She frequently asked herself, you know, what would she have done if she'd had to make a choice between her children and the revolution? And it's pretty clear in the end she would have she would have sided with the revolution. Now, we find that these days pretty chilling, I think, the idea that, that anyone would be able to put a cause ahead of their children. But of course, that is what 
people have often done, and some of the people that we admire most in history, take the French resistance, for example. These were people who we admire massively, but they were prepared to put their families in ex in total peril, total jeopardy, in order to follow what they believed to be right. And Ursula would have put herself in that role. But for the children, it was it was very difficult. Her daughter, Nina, once said in a rather defensive way, well, I don't think my mother had us in order to, to as, as cover but actually, she sort of partly did. Um, and, and when she was about to have her third child, she, she actually wrote, this will be very good because the more children I have, the less anyone suspects what I'm up to. Um, and she ruthlessly really exploited her gender and her motherhood and her domestic circumstances to disguise who she really was. And it worked for, for two decades. Yes. Men... And, and this world is, is the world of espionage was entirely dominated by men. Men simply couldn't see past uh, the apron in the kitchen um, to realize what she was really up to. And it was it was her greatest disguise. Is that why she wasn't detected for so long? Because of the sexism and the that, that approach to thinking, well, it can't be her. Or was she protected? Did she have friends in high places? Well, <laughs> I mean, and also, well, both those things, but also she was very good at what she did. I mean, she was a fully trained, highly trained intelligence officer. That that makes her different in a way from any other woman spy that I've ever come across. No one in any, no woman in any intelligence service rose as high as she did, as far as I've been able to find out. Because she was a pro, this was a vocation for her. This was a career decision and she was highly trained. So that was the other reason. Yes, her gender was an absolutely crucial part of, of her disguise. She was protected within the Soviet intelligence service by many people, actually, and she managed to survive the Stalinist purges, which is quite extraordinary when you consider that most of her friends uh, and, and some of her closest friends were, were rounded up and slaughtered in the, in the mass murder carried out by Stalin. She survived, and that was partly because she was protected um, by her patrons within there. But the question that you're, I suspect, aiming at is, was there someone in, in MI5, in British intelligence, protecting her. And yeah. there's long been this theory that Roger Hollis, who um, had been a young man in Shanghai working for British American Tobacco at the same time as Ursula was there, and joined MI5 and went on to become director general of MI5. There's long been a conspiracy theory that he was not protecting just Ursula, but, but many Soviet spies and that he himself was a Soviet agent. I don't believe that to be the case. There are already, I mean, and, and one has to bear in mind, Hollis was closely involved with the Sonia case. Um, when they did finally get round to realising that, that there was something odd about the, the, the Burton family, it was Hollis who was in overall um, control of that case. And time after time after time, he missed the most obvious clues. Did he miss them? Did he deliberately not look at them? You can only really interpret Hollis in two ways. Either he was a traitor, or he was a fool. And my instinct is that he was the latter. He, you know, in order to hide for 25 years inside uh, British intelligence as a sort of super agent for the Soviets, you'd have to be absolutely brilliant. You'd have to be Kim Philby. Well, Roger Hollis was no Kim Philby, believe me. I mean, he was not of that calibre. And and I think he just he, he just failed. I think he really just fell into the trap that so many men did of, of failing to see her. And indeed, there is one report in the MI5 files where he says, uh, and I paraphrase here, 
he says uh, it, we, we have no reason to suspect Ursula Burton because uh, she is very occupied with her domestic duties. <laughs> well, now, despite the fact that um, Putin has been trying to keep Matt Williams out of this podcast, I think he has finally yes. wrestled his laptop to the ground or gone out and bought another one. Uh, and he, and <laughs> well, he, he, as we approach the final 10 minutes of our interview with Ben, Matt joins us to probably ask <laughs> questions that I've already asked. Hello, yeah. Matt. Okay, so here, hello, hello, Ben. Hello, everyone. Uh, let's get straight into my question. Then. And by the way, oh, I love you. the book, Ben. And, and any, oh, any of yours are always uh, superb. Um, I'm assuming you. you can hear me okay. There appears Indeed, to be I can. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, we can hear you. Right. So okay. ask, ask your questions that we've already asked. Go on. Okay, so here's a question that's already obviously been asked. Right, there is. I, I'm I'm interested in whether in Ursula's doubts. Now, there is a great scene in um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy when um, Gary Oldman, obviously as as Smiley, uh, talks about a an encounter he has with Carla, his opposite number in mm. the KGB, and says that um, Carla was a fanatic, and that's why he knew he could be beaten because every fanatic conceals a hidden doubt. And I wonder whether you felt that Ursula had any hidden doubts, whether there were any times where she thought, what am I doing here? And whether I'm doing it for the right, you know, whether communism is the way forward. I know she she clearly from your book, she had doubts when the purges are happening and she had doubts about the non-aggression pact between Stalin and and Hitler. But But I'm interested in your thoughts about whether she ever doubted what she was doing. It's a very good question, Matt, because a lot of what Ursula wrote before publication was written in East Germany after she got out. And obviously there was a strict limit to how many doubts she was allowed to express in that in that circumstance. On the other hand, I was given access by her family to a lot of her private writings uh, and indeed some of her some of her stuff that was written for publication, but never was actually published. And, And that is much more revealing of the internal struggle that she went through. Um, yes, I think like many, most intelligent communists, you know, the pure ideology that she started with uh, in, in, in 1924, as it was, had, had gone very sour by the time of her old age. And the fall of the Berlin Wall was completely disillusioning for her. But along the way, there had been many other moments of, of real doubt. Um, the purges you mentioned, absolutely, her friends died in huge numbers. And she... She, she, you know, she was she was secretly terrified and she knew that she she couldn't really face this thing. And so she looked away. So, you know, and there is a very queasy part of one of her writings where she sort of she uses some of the ghastly language of Stalinism about mistakes made by comrades, you know. And you really do know that actually she's holding her holding her nose and holding her breath and trying to survive. And then she so she survives that but really i think in later life the two events that really shattered her were the crushing of the hungarian uprising uh, in 56 and um the czechoslovakia the, the destruction of the prague spring in czechoslovakia in 1968 so she was she was deeply she was deeply rattled by those but she remained a communist she stuck to it um even in old age and she said look i didn't do this for stalin i did this and i, I did this because i felt it was right and I did it for an idea. And she, she was quite candid. I mean, she realised when she discovered what the nature of Stalinism had really been, and of course, when that all came out after Stalin's death, she was absolutely 
be appalled by it, as any kind of sentient and intelligent and moral person would be. But she stuck with the programme. Even even in her dying days, she said the idea was right. The idea of communism was right. Its application was wrong. You know, and so she's an in a way that's what I think makes her life so interesting is she she spans the whole of communism from its. You know, she was very, very young when the Bolshevik Revolution took place and she was very old when the Berlin Wall came down. And she traces that extraordinary, a very important element in 20th century history from its beginning to its end. Right. There, there are so many things, including what you've just said now. That's so interesting. And there, actually, and maybe this isn't particularly expected, but there are quite a few things in the book that maybe howl with laughter. And I, I for example, if you're going to be on a surveillance flight at 25,000 feet, don't eat anything beforehand that might give you wind, which I had <laughs> no, because things can get very messy, apparently, if you have wind 25,000 feet. The other, and, and there's, one, there's one episode which seems to be lifted from a two Ronnies sketch where one spy is refusing to give his name to, um, to some KGB officials and calls himself... Oh, the, the guy keeps asking his name, and he says, F off. And so this guy writes, I keep calling him Comrade F off. Uh, from I, know, I, got... I thought it was very funny. Very well, very that, funny. I mean, I, on, on the, the Russian F off sounded like a perfectly plausible name, really. Like, yeah, Co- correct, correct, correct. <laughs> but on a, on a sort of more, more serious note, and I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm hazarding to see whether Simon's already asked this question, but given that Klaus Fuchs was one of the most... Um, was one of her big wins, as it were, as far as he was uh, involved in the nuclear weapons program and passing those secrets to to the Soviet Union. In your your assessment, how far would the Soviets have got if they hadn't had uh, Klaus Fuchs, and therefore if they hadn't had Ursula in their corner? How would they have got on with with getting the bomb? Certainly nowhere near as close. I think that's exactly right. I mean, Klaus Fuchs was her main spy. He was the one who was working within the Tube Alloys Project in Britain and then latterly in the Manhattan Project in America. He was the kind of central pivot of... They had other spies. They certainly did the Soviets. They did a brilliant job of penetrating uh, the atomic establishment, if you like. And they had many, many, in fact, in America as well. But but Klaus Fuchs was the main one. Uh, would they have got there in the end? Probably. Would they have got there so fast? I think extremely unlikely. I mean, between 1941 and 1943, when he was in Britain, Fuchs handed over nearly 600 pages of very precise documents describing exactly where the progress of the atom bomb project was going. And without him, I I don't think Stalin would have pressed the trigger on starting their own secret investigation, their own secret sort of um, project to build their own bomb, anything like as soon as he did. So without Fuchs, would there have been a Soviet atomic bomb? I think there probably would have been eventually, but it would have taken a lot longer. At the beginning of our uh, conversation, Ben, before Matt uh, decided to to join us, um, you, were dis- you were describing the journey that Ursula went on, you know, from Weimar, Germany and Manchuria and Poland and Switzerland and the Cotswolds, which kind of begs the question, especially given what you've just been saying, how much did she actually know about what it was like to live in Russia? Because she seems to... There was the cause that she got, 
But in terms of the living conditions of the country that she was giving her life to protect, she seems to be willfully ignorant. Well, she visited Soviet Russia on several occasions. She was repeatedly brought back for training. But you are right. She was she was very closely monitored. She wasn't simply allowed to wander around Moscow and see what it was really like. She was quite carefully controlled and 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 so on. But I think like many ideologues, she was blinded to the reality. You know, she believed the propaganda. She believed the sort of the, the stories about, you know, how Russia was the only place that was really, you know, dealing with the 20th century properly. And so I think she was both deliberately uh, prevented from seeing the reality and, and could not see the reality herself. Again, it was one of the sources of her greatest disillusionment was when she actually discovered what, what the rest of Russia had been like. I mean, she only ever went to Moscow. She was only ever staying in training schools there. You know, she was only allowed, you know, she was brought out to go and see special parades and to meet uh, important foreign communists. But, but really, did she see what Moscow was really like? No. Does that make her naive? Yes, it does slightly. I, I think I think that is one of that was one of her sort of blind spots was that she sort of she was too ready to believe the propaganda. But then that has always been true of people who believe in any faith that they they are willing to see only the good side. Um, Matt wants to. I think Matt's got a question here about Hitler. Go ahead. Mm. Yes, no, I, 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 I wondered whether we'd asked already about this amazing story um, that Ursula, how close she comes to being able to assassinate Hitler, which is... Well, that was a well, real... Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say anything more. But it came as a total eye-opener to me, that. I mean, I had absolutely no idea when I set out in this project that, that that was part of it. This is the story that relates to the part when she, she was in Switzerland. And, and she arrived in Switzerland in 1938... By this point, she's pretty highly trained. She knows how to build a radio transmitter. And her job is to recruit spies to operate inside the Reich and to report back to, to, to the Soviets. And two of the people that she employed for this, one of them became her husband in the future, uh, were British communists, Alexander Foote and Len Burton. And she's dispatched them into, into the Reich to start gathering information and look for sabotage objects. And they started having lunch in a place called the Osteria Bavaria in Munich, which turned out to be Hitler's favourite restaurant. So whenever Hitler was in Munich, he would always dine there, and, and quite predictably so. And one evening um, back in Switzerland over dinner, uh, they remarked at just how ill sort of guarded Hitler was and how easy it would be to plant a bomb uh, by the very fragile partition that separated his semi-private dining room from the rest of the diners. And of course, Ursula immediately picked up on this, radioed Moscow, and word came back from Moscow, go ahead, do it, kill him. Um, and it was stopped with weeks to go. I mean, it was it was about to be put into operation when the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact took place, the infamous alliance, not alliance, pact between Nazi Germany and Soviet and the Soviet Union, a, a non-aggression pact. And it didn't last, obviously, it, didn't, it lasted up until the point when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. And but the day that that arrived, Ursula received a radio message from Moscow saying, cease all operations against Germany. So she stood her spies down, but it came very, very close to happening. Um, and it would have been much easier, in fact, than, than, than any of the other attempted assassinations of Hitler. It, was, it would actually not have been hard to carry out. Uh, now, I realise that th there'll be elements of this conversation, Ben, which you're probably fed up with having, because as soon as anyone bumps into you, they've probably got so many sort of spy-related <laughs> no, questions. It. 
Um, but I, I mentioned earlier that I'd been watching uh, The Americans, this uh, this TV series, which is, you know, finished a couple of years ago, but I'm only just catching up with it, which is about these uh, sleeper agents, uh, KGB agents in the United States during the 1980s. And uh, you were saying just before we started uh, re- recording this pod, I was just asking about one, how realistic it is. And also you were saying about illegals in this country. So first of all, mm. as, far as, the, as far as you're concerned, was that portrayal of deep KGB agents uh, as illegals accurate? Well, I mean, look, it's a drama, so it's never going to be completely accurate. But in its essence, it is true. I mean, there are two, essentially two types of spy in, in Russian nomenclature, and they are, there are legals and illegals. Now, legals are people under diplomatic cover who are actually working for the intelligence services. So they will appear to be second secretary at the embassy. Actually, they're running, they're the KGB officer in residence. So they're legals and they have diplomatic protection. Illegals, nilegal, are people who are trained to infiltrate a foreign country and appear to be citizens of that country or to be refugees or they come in very many different disguises but they are they are ordinary citizens usually they come under a false identity usually they have sometimes they may be they may be descended from the from the as it were the nationality that they are they are penetrating but often they they go in and often they are as you say sleeper agents for years Ursula was an illegal. She was described by the by the Russian intelligence service as being our may our, our most senior illegal in Britain. But she was one of only many. I mean, this is a long, long-standing Russian spy technique. Of course, in a way, much more relevant when there was a sort of dividing the Iron Curtain that divided East from West, because you had to get people across. But in Britain in the 1950s, there were probably more illegals operating than any other country. I mean, and some of them were quite extraordinary. They were, there was a man called Gordon Lonsdale. I mean, that wasn't his real name, of course. His real name was Conan Molody. He was Russian, but he, he had been partly brought up in Canada. And he posed for years as a kind of itinerant bubblegum salesman on the south coast of England, going from pub to pub, selling slot machines and bubblegum. And he's like a character straight out of Graham Greene. Uh, but in fact, if you'd been able to open his mouth, you'd have found there was a special gold... Uh, tooth at the back of his mouth, which was a uh, which had been drilled in order to provide a recognition signal. Should he ever have to prove to his Russian controllers that he was actually someone completely different, and he was one of only 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 I mean dozens. So so the the idea of implanting someone invisibly uh, abroad is absolutely central to sort of KGB tradecraft. And of course, it sort of continues today. It's a it's a little different today because, of course, you know, there's freedom of movement be- between countries. Um, there are many, many citizens of of our country and other allied countries in foreign countries, you know, and vice versa. And so they're not quite hiding in the same way, but they are nonetheless agents either of influence or actively operating as intelligence agents who are who appear to be perfectly ordinary citizens. So that American story, I mean, it, it is based, it, it's sort of a conflation in a way of the old KGB technique and the new uh, Putin technique, because of course, uh, many of your listeners will remember um, the Anna Chapman story when um, a, a rather beautiful Russian uh, illegal was, was rounded up along with a whole bunch of others in America by the FBI. 
Um, uh, and that, that, but that's a much more modern story. That was in about, I think that was about 2007 that they were, they were revealed. But it's the same technique. You, you take your spine, you, you plant them in a, in a different world and they meld in completely. Which is going back to what you were saying earlier when we were talking about Oleg Gordievsky about seeing Russian history as a continuum. Yes, I mean, many of the techniques that, that have been used by the KGB throughout history, I mean, not least wet jobs, you know, I mean, the tradition of, of actually killing your enemies abroad. I mean, that's what, that's, you know, this is a long established technique, um, you know, Trotsky onwards. Um, I often remember, um, it was often said that when Stalin died, there was only one letter that they found in his desk, um, and it was from Tito, the leader of the communist leader of Yugoslavia, who was sort of, you know, who was sort of an enemy of, of Stalin's really, because he, re he refused to toe the line and went his own way. And the letter I'm paraphrasing here from Tito goes, dear comrade, uh, dear comrade Stalin, um, you've now sent four people to try to kill me. Uh, if you send any more, I shall send one and I shall not need to send another. Yours, <laughs> Tito. Wow. Um, so, you know, wow. it's... This is, you know, and, and many other techniques as well. It's interesting. I mean, when you mentioned earlier Gordievsky, I mean, one of the jobs that his he was supposed to do when he arrived in Britain in the 80s was to try to rig the election by affecting public opinion and swinging the election away from Margaret Thatcher and towards um, Michael Foote and the Labour Party. And this was to be done by planting false stories and, um, you know, trying to infiltrate fake news into the news bloodstream how familiar does that sound yes yeah well it's 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 an astonishing story and yet again ben mcintyre has uncovered an extraordinary tale we've just really scratched the surface of agent sonia lover mother soldier spy uh, with ben ben thank you very much indeed there's going to be a q a with ben mcintyre as a separate podcast uh, as we do every time uh, we have an author, and I think Matt's going to be there for all of that. Are you planning to be there for all of it, Matt? He's hoping. Oh, my goodness, yes. Excellent. <laughs> if I haven't uh, thrown my laptop out of my loft. Uh, ben <laughs> McIntyre, thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure. So our thanks to uh, Ben McIntyre. Always fascinating to speak to Ben. Were you actually secretly writing your novel? Is that why you bothered to join us? <laughs> no, I was, was. what I was doing, I was jumping up and down on my laptop. I even ended up trying to get my son's laptop up here to work. And it's basically, uh, this is what happens with me, the technology is as soon as I got the other laptop up here, my laptop suddenly decided to start working. And you're like, it's just so petty. My laptop is just like me. That's that's, that's my problem. Um, but yes, no, I, I, I was very yeah. close to tipping it out the loft. Well, you deal so well with frustration. Um, that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Anyway, um, let me just take this uh, opportunity to say that the Books of the Year podcast is brought to you in association with Brooklyn Lager, the hoppy amber lager from Brooklyn, which unites flavours of toffee, toast and caramel with a dry hopped aroma full of grapefruit, flowers and pine. Books of the Year is also brought to you in association with Manilife Deep Roast Crunchy Peanut Butter. <laughs> with a... <laughs> Shut up. With no added sugar, no palm really? oil, and is it's oh, vegan friendly. This is the peanut oh, butter dear. with a deep, dark flavor, thick and creamy texture, and big, crunchy pieces. That's Manilife Deep Roast Crunchy Peanut Butter. A friend. 
yeah. of this podcast, even though they know nothing about it, and neither did Brooklyn Lager. Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, we did ask uh, our listeners to give us some uh, five-star reviews on uh, iTunes or whatever it's called yes, these please. days. And, and, and literally three people did. So many, many thanks to the three of you who bothered to get up off your backsides and give us a review. But uh, th- those three people, I think, are going to get a big mention now. Uh, Silly Lover says, five-star podcast, the late to the party, and only found this during lockdown, but a real treat and now almost caught up. I will be going back to revisit some of the early episodes of books that I've since read. And no doubt you can also hear adverts for people who are no longer supporting us. Thanks very much, uh, silly lover. Angry Redhead number nine says, I love this podcast, especially the Q&A. Simon and Matt are a great double act. Thank you, Angry Redhead number nine. And finally, The Brim uh, says, stumbled across this. I'm so glad. I cannot believe I haven't found this podcast before. I miss these two fine gentlemen from the Radio 2 drive time days. Don't start. And this has fast become one of my favourite podcasts. Also loving Mr. Mayo's excellent new book. Unbelievable how they managed to get that in as well. What a great book. Actually, Mark, Bill, uh, Mark, it's either Mark Billsthorpe in Nottinghamshire or Mark in Billsthorpe in Nottinghamshire. Anyway, yes. Simon and Matt, I must send sincere apologies as I've only just discovered this wonderful podcast. What a little gem of a, li- of a listen. I've been an avid gem. listener of the film show pod for years and now I have this little treasure to look forward to as well. To celebrate... I've just ordered a copy of Knife Edge. I'm sure Matt's book will be equally oh, worthy of yeah. the purchase. Anyway, great entertainment and down with the Nazis. Oh, no, that's the other one, isn't it? Anyway, Mark, <laughs> thank you. That's Knife Edge. You can get it in some supermarkets for a fiver, which seems to me a little for bit... For a fiver, yeah. Offensive. Yeah. I know, a fiver, I mean, <laughs> which is like, come on. Uh, on the Robert Harris programme, Rachel, uh, real Rachel says, I learned something... Unexpected about the technology leading up to the moon landings and a whole lot more. Francis Crossland says, really interesting. Makes you want to research it more and read the book. Peter Gedge, uh, talking about Alistair Campbell, says, I just listened to Books of the Year podcast with uh, Alistair Campbell, uh, which, regardless of what you think of him or his politics, which apparently we now have to put in uh, brackets when we talk about Alistair Campbell, was educational and humorous about mental health. Yes, and Paula Farney says, yes, Books of the Year, feel free to advertise Fantastic Fireworks Limited for free. You haven't quite worked this one out, Paula. Either you <laughs> you impress us with your product or you pay to sponsor the podcast, okay? And, it also uh, it also appears the it that the only way you get, you get onto the podcast with Simon is be in his food cupboard. If you're already in his food cupboard, then you appear to get, you, you're, you're one of our sponsors. That's how it, seems to work here yes well i think that i think that's i think that's fair enough <laughs> yeah sandra golding has emailed in uh, imagine that email uh, really enjoyed your interview with richard osman i immediately downloaded this book and listened to listened to it intently until i finished it now i hear it's being made into a film i heard dame judy dench in an interview with david tennant saying that she's always on the lookout for roles that are different not just an old biddy waiting to die and i thought she'd make a great choice for elizabeth and i could imagine jenny agatha as joyce that's not bad actually jenny Yes. Uh, any news on Simon's book being dramatised? It would make a great TV drama spread over a week. Uh, brilliant shows as always. Uh, who chooses the books you feature and how many books do you read each week for the show? Well, first of all, any, Simon, any news on dramatising your book? No, uh, well, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I would say there are, com- you know, it's, look, uh, 
There are, yeah. well, yeah. you know, it's sort of, mm. I mean, you you start to have, and then someone, uh, and oh, you yeah. get very, you get very, and then they, and then, no. so no. Right. what with everything so, no. going on, <laughs> there is, you know, there are some people, and then what happens is, yeah. and, yeah. and that, mm. which, which in a roundabout way Fabulous. is, is sort of, yeah. yes, but, you know, but yeah. also no. But also no, yeah, fine, okay. And and like, who chooses it? Well, we 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 all choose. The I don't know. I have got so, no idea. I'm uh, just told. <laughs> <laughs> so so well, we do. And our producer Ben, uh, who has uh, c- crossed the talent moat occasionally and been heard on this program, um, but um, he he also obviously has a big say in which in which books. We I th- a producer and Ben is probably, he can probably. He can probably speak. Actually, are you there, producer Ben? Uh, yeah. How do, how do we decide what we books go. to do? Uh, bribery on the whole. Uh, I get sent up the stuff that you ask for. <laughs> okay. Any sign of Brooklyn beer or Man Alive peanut butter yet? <laughs> no, no, not yet. But I got uh, a load of Jelly Babies and some uh, gardening vouchers for a garden centre. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is very good. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for making it to the bitter end, because nobody gets to the bitter end of the podcast. No. Everybody stops in no. the final bit. They've heard the, yeah. they've heard Ben McIntyre, and they're thinking, I don't, I really, really, look, it looks, it's got another six minutes to run. That's going to be too much, <laughs> isn't it? So if anybody gets to the, yes, if anybody gets to the final bit of the podcast, your special code, which will get you a discount uh, on the next podcast, <laughs> is... Laurie McNenemy. Okay, so if you message us, <laughs> either tweet us at Books of the Year or you can email Books of the Year at yahoo.com. If you say Laurie McNenemy, you get 10% off the next podcast. Hang on, hang on. It, it's, it's Laurie McNenemy. It's not Laurie McNenemy. I'm pretty sure. In fact, I, I don't know. I don't see what the difference McMenemy. is. <laughs> he, the guy who. In, who did the TV ad for the most appalling alcohol-free beer of all time. <laughs> Him. However you spell right, it, one. if you message us yeah. with that, you will get 10% off the next podcast. That's just the way it off. goes. Thank you so much indeed Real. for downloading and look out for the Q&A, which is coming very soon. <laughs>